good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! All right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking psychedelic maelstroms. We're talking a shadow with a thorny crown. And we're talking Patrick Schwarzenegger stripping for grades. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking some really intense deep-throating. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> oh yes, yes. I guess, how would we say that? Patrick Schwarzenegger deep-throating no, it, Miles Robbins? It's forcibly inserting yourself into a deep-throat? It's literally deep-throating. I'm making hand motions that I wish people could see. <laughs> he is literally deep-throating... Well, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, yeah so we're talking... <laughs> We're talking Adam Egypt Mortimer's Daniel Isn't Real, y'all. A, a film that I am prepared to die on a hill saying it is a modern classic, and I know mm-hmm. that's terrible to say, but fuck it, I'm saying it anyway. Now, this is an absolutely great film, kind of criminally underseen. I feel like the people who like it like it a lot, but I feel like it needs a bigger audience. You know, it's one of those films... I went through my timeline here because it, it was a South by Southwest film back in 2019, and actually... And I apologize if anyone who's a South by Southwest programmer is listening to this. It was a a year that I didn't think the genre offerings were really that good, and this was the first film, along with the um, you know, the the, the one we like to bring up a lot is the Helen Hunt ICU movie. Mm-hmm. This was the movie that I saw, and I was like, oh, thank God, like something good. Yep. yep. <laughs> But, Joe, I mean, we've got a lot to unpack here. In case you haven't seen this movie, of course, we will, we will be going into spoilers. So make sure you have seen the film, because if it was shitty, we would just say fuck it and listen to us. But in this case, I really do think it's important to have seen the film. Okay. But we need someone to help us unpack this. Uh, so, everyone, he is the owner, founder, and editor-in-chief of Gaily Dreadful, your one-stop shop for all things queer horror. He is also the co-host of the Scarred for Life podcast, which looks at all the films that scared us as kids. He's also the editor of We Are Horror, a bi-monthly genre e-magazine whose content creators are 80% comprised of at minimum, creators who are women, BIPOC, and members of the queer community. Um, he also has a day job. Uh, <laughs> <Ow>. <laughs> on top of all these things. Of course, also, he's also a returning guest, mm-hmm. making it up for his way too long absence ever since we discussed Final Destination over two years ago. Everyone, please welcome Mr. Terry Menard. Yay! Y'all, I just gotta say, it was so hard to not crack up Trace while you were talking about deep throating. I just, I just, I just gotta get that out there because I'm like sitting over here trying to be like, I, I'm not trying to, to, you know, tease that I'm here, but you guys are making me laugh. It's not fair. <laughs> it's what I do. We try to make people giggle in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. This movie is absolutely a modern day classic. I mm. have to agree. Well, I mean, so you, of course, know this. You know, we, we obviously want to have you back. We love you. But you you wanted this film specifically. I don't even... Did, Joe, did you even send him a list? Or was he like, are y'all covering Daniel Isn't Real soon? No, I absolutely did send him the list. But it was kind of like, if Daniel Isn't Real is going to be on that list, I claim it immediately. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. Because this this movie this movie is fantastic. I love it. It has like that queer subtext, and I'm sure we're gonna dive right into oh, this yes. piece as much as Daniel was diving into Lou. Yes, I was waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> I but there's there's so much going on in this, and what I what I love about this movie, and why I I completely agree with you that it is a modern classic, is there's so many different ways that you can take a look at this film. You can yeah. explore it from so many different angles, and I'm so excited to do that. <laughs> well, there are obviously people that don't like this film. You know, n- not every film is going to be a winner for everybody. But who are they? Well, it, it, <laughs> call them out, name and shame. As with any film that deals with mental illness, as this one very much does, right. it's going to have some strong opinions. And I, I'm, I'm intrigued, excited, and a little bit nervous to dive into how this film deals with those things. Because mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a positive way to look at it, but I also think there is a really negative and potentially problematic way of looking at this film. Right. Yeah. That's, I think, one of its strengths. Like you suggested, Terry, there's so many different ways to read this film. And I'm actually reminded a little bit of the episode that you and I did for Patreon and then later released on the main feed, Trace, the taking of Deborah Logan, where I think we can have Mm. some similar conversations about these films that take mental illness as their entryway and then actually say, oh, it's not mental illness. It is literally demons or literally evil or something like that. I will say, it, uh, an interesting movie marathon, it, it won't be fun, but no. an interesting <laughs> an interesting movie marathon. So we can do Daniel Isn't Real, we can do The Babadook, mm. we can do Taking of Deborah Logan, and then maybe finish it out, or maybe start it, because this is probably the most egregious example of the bunch, but like include Lights Out, which I do think that film got a lot of flack for something that, in a way, it handles mental illness. And I do think that people that don't like this probably feel similarly about it. Like, I think it, I think they think it makes a lot of the same mistakes, or, I'm sorry, mistake, that Lights Out does mm. in, in its treatment of, of the topic. You know, I think that this is sort of this kind of same subject matter as people who either relate to or are repulsed by the rape-revenge subgenre, mm-hmm. where, you know, every person that either suffers from it or has you know been a victim of or uh, has survived it i think have different readings of films because i mean i i was looking in, initially about like mental health in this movie and i saw some articles like the one from jerry jerry smith at dread central that says that he saw himself seen for the first time because of dealing with the idea of like suicidal ideation and that kind of right. thing so i i do think that there are you know it's it's not a monolith there are people are going to react to any movie about mental illness in different yeah. ways i think yeah yeah, yeah. There's nuance there, we can say. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, l- let's just go right in, because I do have a bit of production, because, um, oh, I'm, I'm going to humble brag, though. So I did buy the DVD for this. I don't know why I didn't buy it before. But if you um, would like a piece of entertainment with my name on it, please <laughs> go buy the DVD of Daniel Isn't Real, because <laughs> my name and pull quote from my four and a half out of five star review is on this DVD. Hell it's yeah. the best you'll get until Trace finally starts his only fan account. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. No, the OnlyFans is coming. <laughs> oh my god, Freudian slip. I'm keeping that in. <laughs> it's not really coming, though. I'm not doing an OnlyFans. Although my husband has told me to do it just so we can get money. So, I don't know. Let me know if y'all are interested. No, not do you not. Two. No. <laughs> Hard pass. Thank you, but no. So, Daniel isn't real. It's directed by Adam Egypt Mortimer uh, from a screenplay by himself and Brian DeLue. But the... F- film is actually based upon the latter's novel, In This Way I Was Saved. Mm-hmm. So this was their second time writing a feature-length screenplay together. The first one was 2015's Some Kind of Hate, which is a film that also looks at a serious topic, in, in this case bullying and um, a lot of self-harm, through a horror lens. Have either one of you seen that film? I have not. 
I have. And uh, by your tone, I take it that you don't think it's as successful as this film. Uh, n- no. I-, I remember I watched it in prep. I mean, mm-hmm. to humble brag on my own, uh, I mean, I did get to talk to Adam Egypt Mortimer on my podcast. And so I wanted to watch this film as sort of like to understand right. his filmmaking style before I talked to him. And mm. that movie just did not do it for me. And I just don't know if it was because I was in the glow of Daniel isn't real mm. and it just didn't work as well. But... I don't think it was very successful in what it was trying to do. Without going too deep, because we're not, I know we're not talking about this film, but I, I, like I said, it takes a look at something that's very serious. Um, mm-hmm. Again, like the results of bullying and like what that does to you as a person, how it, how it can affect your mental health. And that's really interesting. The problem is it's also kind of a generic slasher film. Oh. And those two films are constantly at war with each other. And unfortunately, the generic slasher wins over. Mm. So... You want it to go deeper, and it really just ends up scratching the surface a lot. Interesting, because even having not seen it, that description can see the genesis or maybe the kernel yeah. of how Daniel Isn't Real came about. Because I, I have seen a lot of people say, oh, it feels like there's a couple of different genres at work in Daniel Isn't Real. And ultimately, it's kind of like one wins out in the end. Yeah, and bear in mind... I'm fine with a generic slasher. The problem is that the movie Some Kind of Hate is a very angry movie because it mm-hmm. deals with very angry characters. Mm. And because of that, it's not a fun generic slasher. It's very no. upsetting. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, it's been a while since I've, I've watched it, but I remember being very um, uncomfortable with it. Yeah. And maybe that was the point. I mean, authorial intent in that and whatnot, mm-hmm. but like, it just, it was not a movie that I enjoyed watching. And, I just, I just, yeah, it w- yeah. did not work for me. Hmm. I totally get that. I, I do think that Mortimer is a better director than he is a writer. Not to say I think he's a bad writer, but I think he's a much more accomplished director than he is a writer because he has either written or co-written all of his three films. Hmm. I feel like I should also point out that Daniel Isn't Real is part one of Mortimer's Vortex trilogy. So this is his second film, but his first entry in this Vortex trilogy. The next film is is Arch Enemy, a film with Joe Manganiello that came out um, actually back in December. It's very recent. It's more of a thematic link between the films in the Mm -hmm. trilogy and that it's going to be, it's very much like the cosmic horror type thing. Both films do start with a look at um, some kind of space void thing. (laughs) (laughs) But Mortimer does say, and I quote, Mark my words, we are going to make a third movie in the Vortex trilogy that will have Daniel, from Daniel Isn't Real, return and force Max, who is Joe Manganiello from Arch Enemy, in some form to deal with it. A crisis on infinite vortices, pulling together as many of the characters from both stories as we can fit for a true cosmic horror slash cosmic action crossover hybrid. Jesus, that sounds ambitious and maybe like he's been watching some MCU films. (laughs) A little bit. Well, it's funny that you bring that up because I was immediately thinking of M. Night Shyamalan yeah, and his, I was his Glass and, yeah. and Split mm. and, you know, Unbreakable, how, you know, Unbreakable and, and Split seem two different kinds of movies and then they all get put together in the third one. Actually, right. that's a really good comparison because I saw so many people comparing Arch Enemy to, um, like, uh, James Gunn's Super or even oh. something like Watchmen. Okay. But I think your comparison to Glass and Split actually does make a lot more sense. Interesting. And of course, we talked about Glass previously on the Patreon. That was our second Patreon episode (laughs) way back in the day. But that would be interesting, if only because I know so many people are split on how successful that film is at (laughs) merging its two previous entries. And Terry, you do not like it. (laughs) I did not. I did not like it at all. 
So, so my husband to this day still has not seen Glass because he was like, I just heard it wasn't very good. And I'm, I'm sitting there in the corner like, I actually kind of yeah, liked it. <laughs> we, we liked it back in the day. Yeah, we oh. did. <laughs> it's, it's not what you expect, but it's, right. I still think it's a good movie. But anyway. I mean, we're not talking about that, that, that trilogy here, but, uh, but also I just got to say that my problem might be that I watched all three back to back in a movie oh, theater. Yeah. And mm. so I saw Unbreakable, which I think is amazing. amazing. I saw Split, which I thought is really good. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the third one and I'm like, right. Meh. Tonal whiplash too. Yeah. It's not as bombastic. Like it's very much like a, it's a more like close personal story, I feel like, but it's just like, I can see how narratively you'd be like, oh, that just kind of like. Womp womp, like whimper, whimper, whimper. That's how it ends. Well, it privileged. Yeah, you know what, folks, go back and listen to our glass episode. We talk it all through. <laughs> so, okay, back to this film. Daniel isn't real because that is the film we're discussing today. I guess you forgot. <laughs> oh, we are. <laughs> Despite being based on Delu's book. Oh, and I do want to point out too that Delu co-wrote some kind of hate with Mortimer as well. Mm-hmm. But Mortimer had already read Daniel isn't real prior to that, so I think it was like a thing where he was like, "Hey, I love your book. Let's write a movie together." Also, now let's adapt your book together. <laughs> now let's do the movie I really want to do. Yeah, but even though this film is based on that book, it does take quite a few liberties. I mean, I don't have, like, obviously, like, a list. Like, for example, like, in the novel, there's not a storyline about Daniel having possessed someone else before. So we don't really, like, it is suggested, like, you know, there's a dead body at the beginning and a kid who kills himself. But the novel doesn't do anything with that outside Mm. of just saying, this happened. And I think that's actually a a step in the right direction for the film, personally, because I actually really like that reveal. Right. I do too, and I I definitely want to talk about that once we get to it, because I think it actually makes this movie a lot more interesting and adds another dimension to it that what I probably is lacking from the book. A whole other yeah. dimension? Like one oh. of infinite cosmic? vortices. <laughs> so I listened to the to Mortimer's commentary on this film today, which I... I don't always listen to commentary, but because there's not a lot of information about this film, because it is relatively new, I was like, you know what, let's see what's going on here. A, his commentary, he's very technical, but, like, it's not a dry commentary. Like, you know, sometimes you can watch commentaries and it's like, well, the sun was out today and we brought out the camera (laughs) and we shot it and, you know, we blah, blah. And I was like, okay, that's fine, but I don't know what you're talking about. Tell us about craft services, you bitch. (laughs) <laughs> I know. Tell us about all the juicy gossip and like all, all the all the sex that Miles Robbins and Patrick Schwarzenegger were having off screen. Oh my god, one can dream. Can you imagine? I mean, what? <clears throat> Who said that? But I will say that Mortimer is, he wants everyone to know up front, he did not go to film school. But he is very... I'm sorry, what? Are you fucking kidding me? He did not go to film school. <laughs> I am shocked because this movie is so expertly crafted. And I have seen his tweets. Like when this movie came out, I was really following it in terms of like its rollout release. And he is so thoughtful and careful about how this movie is constructed. I'm uh-huh. I'm honestly gagged right now. Well, let me tell you. So basically, he gave everyone in the crew a 40-page style guide for this film. He color-coded the script based on the tone or mood of the scene to determine which lens, lighting, etc. to use for each scene. Wow. He does divide the film into three kind of pseudo-acts. He has isolation, which is uh, roughly the first 20 to 25 minutes. Manic, or mania, which is, you know, when, when... Daniel and Luke are going through there like, hey, let's have fun together. Mm -hmm. And then Max objective, which is basically the last like 30, 40 minutes of the movie um, where Luke has lost control of his mind or his otherness. So what I'm hearing is that he has kind of constructed the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is a painting that is referenced in the film. 
Mm. It's a triptych where the left side is representing, I think, like an Eden state. The middle section is is everyone kind of enjoying themselves frivolously, and then the right section is hell. Wow. Wow. Okay. See, they not something I would have caught, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> but even like from like, like from the language of cinema, like um, like for most of the film, super wide shots were shot on a spherical lens, whereas the rest of the movie was shot on anamorphic. But then when we get to the exorcism scene later with the with the Doctor Braun, he switches it. He changes the rules of how he's filming the film, and we get objective and anamorphic wide shots in that scene and moving forward. And that's like something where it's like, okay, like. Me, I'm not going to notice that you're switching out the camera or a lens for a film to tell me how I'm supposed to feel during this scene. But then I do feel like it's also like the subconscious thing, right? Where it's like, I'm not recognizing visually that this thing is happening. But no matter what, that is affecting how I'm seeing the film. Right. So, you know, that's his kind of visual aesthetic going on here. For the score, he wanted to go for a Bernard Herrmann type score that would then be dropped into a, and he calls this a thresher of sorts. <laughs> An industrial thresher. Yes, exactly. And Terry, Joe kind of clued me into this, but you have something to say about the score? I just, I love Clark, the composer of, mm-hmm. of this score. Uh, I think he does such a fantastic job of combining what you just said, of taking the sort of like industrial tones and the the kind of post-electronic tones that we, we are seeing now, where he's taking the stuff that I grew up listening to in the 90s, like Nine Inch Nails and whatnot. He takes that and he does give it that sort of orchestral type combination. Mm-hmm. And I think that it kind of comes together to represent both sides of Daniel and Luke because you have like the sort of menacing industrialness and then you also have the sort of like typical mm-hmm. uh, orchestral aspect of it and right. it's just i i love his work and he actually if you go listen to the album he clark resequenced the album to make it sound like an actual album and not like a, a score oh like like okay next scene uh, this next scene this so like it like flows better yeah or like more seamlessly yep. so you can listen to it as as if you were listening to kind of an, an electronica album that's interesting. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. And folks, as a, a side plug, Terry and I actually spent quite a fair amount of time talking about Clark because he ended up doing the score for Apple TV's Leazy Story, which we ended up covering on the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network. Joe, we discussed this. You can't talk about your other <laughs> podcast when I'm right here. Side plug. <laughs> it's like my side cheating plug, okay? It's a hot piece on the side. No, that, 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 that's great, though. I'm really happy for you both. Ha- have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Which means Trace has never listened to a single episode and won't. Um, okay, I have not started watching Lisey's story, so it doesn't count. Yeah, it's fine. And also, your two and a half star review of the entire season makes me not <laughs> want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it has some messy parts, but the score is not one of them. The score is actually go. pretty good. Which he also got because of the score. Like, the, the director, yeah. Pablo Larraín, loved the score and was oh. like, need you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at least that's good, though, right? Because even though we're saying that this movie is underseen, it's clearly not underseen in, like, the business. Mm. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so when discussing this film, so Mortimer says that at the center of the film, we've got a story about how we want to be good people, but there are voices inside of us or impulses that suggest we do bad things. There's a universal theme, a human theme, about the darkness inside of us. And it's also a film that deals with toxic masculinity and incel culture and how men take out their anger and frustration on women. And hmm. this is kind of the first thing he says in this commentary, which I thought was interesting because he was... At first, staying away 
from the mental illness metaphor of the film. He was very much like, a, oh, yeah, Daniel's representative of that little voice inside of us. But I'm also kind of like, yeah, but he's a demon. <laughs> right. Uh, yep. He was kind of ignoring that part of it. And so I was like, okay, so maybe this is his first and foremost how he's approaching this material, how he's writing this material. That being said, he also states there's a three-part metaphor in the movie where we look at, one, mental illness. Of course, literally manifesting it as a demon and fighting it on a rooftop. But he also is adamant. He goes, this isn't a movie that is purely about mental illness. It's just that it's comparable to wrestling with a demon. When the movie Mm. starts talking about the cosmos, the human condition is inherited trauma that comes from the cosmic womb, which sounds really gross to me cosmic womb i just i can't even (laughs) but but the other two metaphors he brings up are a undiagnosable human suffering and b supernatural slash demonic slash cosmic realms but that kind of ties back into what you were saying earlier joe and that there are so many different ways to watch absorb interpret this film and i think mortimer is aware of that which is why he tries to cover as many bases as he can in this commentary but it's just like I don't mm-hmm. think you can do this film justice trying to unpack all of that as you're watching it. No, you'd almost need to have three different uh, like commentaries focusing on different aspects of it. Yes. <laughs> there, there's so much that is going in so many different directions that it, it, it seems like it would be very difficult to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if that's one of the struggles that people have with this. So I remember, as I mentioned, I was following the rollout of this very eagerly because I kept missing it at different film festivals. And then I was like, okay, when is this finally going to become available? I would sign up to cover a festival, see that it was playing, immediately ask for it, and then be like, oh, they're actually not going to provide screeners for that one. You have to be there in person. And I was never there in person. Same. Same, Joe. Same. <laughs> it was so frustrating. I don't I mean, like, because normally at film festivals, you know, most most films, unless they're a big screening. So this film was at South by Southwest um, the same year that Pet Cemetery the remake, was out, mm-hmm. and The Curse of La Llorona. It had Ooh. two screenings. I skipped the first one because I was like, you know what? I have other films, like other genre films that I think are more for me. This was a film I wasn't really excited to review because I was like, ooh, cosmic horror. I didn't really like Mandy that much. Um, (laughs) It's not really going to be for me. And also, pre-word of mouth wasn't that good for this because people were really judging it based on the fact that Patrick Schwarzenegger was the co-star. Yeah, I think that there was some misconceptions about what this was going to be. Like, I remember seeing that there were stories about Hollywood nepotism and him getting this role Mm -hmm. because if you think about it, it actually has two famous yep. people's children right. in the lead roles, right? Yeah. So here's the thing. Yes, everyone, in case you don't know, Patrick Schwarzenegger is obviously the child of Maria Shriver and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Miles Robbins is the son, the straight son um, of, I say, I'm sorry, maybe this is rude, but I say straight, but he also like does dress and wear dresses, which I really respect a lot. Like this is a cisgender heterosexual man who wears dresses openly in public. And I'm like, you know what? I mm-hmm. admire that in you, Miles Robbins, but um, he is the son of Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. Yes. I don't disagree that there is nepotism at play here, but I'm also kind of like, A, they both do really well. So I'm like, I'm not watching this like, oh, wow, this would have been better with if anyone else was in this role. But I'm also kind of like, this is clearly a low-budget film. And I can guarantee you that having the prodigies of two very, very, very famous and wealthy acting families is going to be good for getting a distribution deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even then, it, it still had its share yeah. of troubles. Like, <laughs> this isn't a big film. It's not that it ended up breaking out because it had these well-known, recognizable children of famous people. I mean, I will tell you right now, I didn't put the Miles Robbins thing together until 
in the past year. I had seen him in Blockers, which, P.S., if you've never seen Blockers, he is one of the highlights of that film. Oh, he absolutely is. <laughs> He's so funny. <laughs> and I saw him in Halloween uh, 2018 because he plays the exact same character he plays in Blockers, but, like, with a lot less screen time. Right. So I, I really appreciated seeing him in this movie because it was just something different. It was something I hadn't seen from him. And I think Robbins pulls this part off with aplomb, even though it is the less, quote-unquote, showy role between... Luke well, and in, until he becomes Daniel, and then you suddenly realize, oh, holy yep. shit, he is really adept at balancing both of those performances. Agreed. The switch is so fucking fun. So, okay, I'm, I'll wrap up. So, <laughs> this film does have its world premiere at South by Southwest. Uh, this is March 9th, 2019. I probably saw it four days later because I skipped that first screening. Um, <laughs> bad me. <laughs> Shortly after Samuel Goldwyn Films acquired distribution rights to the film, it was released on DVD and VOD on December 6, 2019. It had a very positive reception. We were looking at an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, with an average score of 7.1 out of 10, and a letterboxed score of 6.4 out of 10. So I think that is interesting. It's an inter- I mean, again, it's like, you know, less than a point across, but it's still like 3 out of 5 versus a 3.5 to a 4 out of 5. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is uh, that is Daniel isn't real and no, it's not. That's the production. Now we have to talk <laughs> about the movie. <laughs> okay. We're done, guys. That was good. But we're done. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that is the production of Daniel isn't real. Joe, please, by all means, <laughs> give us your plot summary. Okay. So we open with, as we've mentioned a couple of times, a swirling cosmic maelstrom, and then we. Properly commenced the film with young Luke, who is played by Griffin Robert Faulkner, and he is observing his parents fight. So he runs out of the house. He ends up coming upon a very grisly crime scene where a man has shot up a coffee shop. And then out of the blue, beside him appears a little dark haired boy played by Nathan Reed. And the two just kind of go off and play until he is collected by his mother, Claire. Mm-hmm who's played by Mary Stuart Masterson. She comes to collect him, and this is where we get the introduction of this new friend who is going by the name of Daniel. Did y'all want more Mary Stuart Masterson in this movie? Because I have to tell you, like, two and a half scenes of her was not enough for me. Yeah, I I absolutely wanted more. I thought she was fantastic in this, and both really sad to watch, but then Mm -hmm. at sometimes really terrifying. Well, well, I'm sure we'll get to the scene later, but she really commands the screen whenever she's on it for sure. Oh, a hundred. I mean, admittedly, I really like, I know she's a famous actress. She actually does a lot of stage work that I didn't know about, but, um, right. Fried green tomatoes is one of my absolute favorite films of all time. And I, Oh, Oh, Oh my God. (laughs) 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 Terry. Um, are you a Steel Magnolias fan, or have you not seen that either? Seen what? Steel Magnolias? No. Oh my god, okay. <laughs> okay, so, uh, okay. If the idea of Mary Stuart Masterson in a lesbian, uh, sorry, a coded, heavily coded lesbian relationship with Mary Louise Parker <gasps> Love her. sounds very interesting to you, as they are, you know, running a cafe in Louisiana that is told in flashback by Jessica Tandy to Kathy Bates. There's also Chris O'Donnell and an entire scene where they kill someone, uh, a racist guy, and cook him in barbecue and serve him to their restaurant patrons. Oh my god. If that sounds interesting to you, I highly recommend watching Fried Green Tomatoes. <laughs> that was not what I thought happened in Fried Green Tomatoes. <laughs> 
they literally, there's a racist and they kill him and they serve him in the barbecue. And there's a whole comedy gag when a cop is like, this is damn, he's investigating like the disappearance. And he's like, this is damn good barbecue. What is it? And and you have Mary Jean Matchton going, secrets in the sauce. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's so good. But like literally like you'll cry. But it's like a, a epitome of like lesbian like love affair type movie. The 90s mm. were wild. It's so good. It's so fucking good, but I cry every time I watch it. So Mary Stuart yeah. Masterson in this film. <laughs> yeah, I also wanted more of her. I find the transition between the children's stuff to the adult stuff just a touch jarring because she seems relatively composed here and i recognize folks we are talking about mental health issues the Mm. gloves are i was gonna say gloves are gonna come off but really i feel like i want to tread carefully here because i recognize that just because she seems perfectly fine here doesn't mean that she isn't already suffering from the kinds of mental illness that she will describe later in the film right i mean when she's first introduced maybe i'm i'm wrong but i thought she's like smashing dishes and she is attacking her i think to be ex-husband and she's saying i'm not me anymore when i take this medicine and it cuts to luke saying we'll be okay wilbur and then that's what like leaves is that his parents are fighting so i I do think that it sort of sets that up a little bit Hmm. yeah i think i just always see it as oh his parents are fighting and he can't take it so he leaves but yeah i do think you're right that that is why they're fighting watching this i'm like okay well what's wrong with her which is not really a good way of phrasing it but i was very much like okay so this is bipolar but then as the film moves along it's kind of like oh this may be like schizophrenia or bipolar meets schizophrenia the the film actually doesn't take any time or, or isn't interested in addressing the exact diagnosis it's just that she is mentally unstable mentally ill mm-hmm so she collects Luke and he brings Daniel back home with him so that they can continue playing. And we get a, a bit of a montage about their friendship as it grows. And it seems very, I was going to say chase, but then I realized, oh, that makes it sound like it's going to be sexual, which in a way it is. It, I mean, people may combat us on this, right? They're going to be like, um, no, they're just friends, guys. But <laughs> there, there are very homoerotic sexual undertones. If only because of how many times we're getting Schwarzenegger naked in this movie. Oh, and we will talk about that once we get to those points in the in the <laughs> plot. Because I don't understand how someone could not say this movie is homoerotic at the very least. At the very least, yeah. You can say it's not fully queer or that you wish it was more queer but it's homoerotic at bare minimum when we talked to uh adam one of the first things he said when i when i brought it up talking to him he said i want people to think i am gay when they watch this movie okay that's awesome because here's the thing i've never spoken to this man i actually get really nervous at interviews i don't like giving interviews because i get it's not really starstruck it's just more like i just don't want this person like my one interaction with this person to hate me for the rest of my life (laughs) (laughs) oh my god but i like that response because it's even you can have someone that's like oh no that wasn't intentional or you can have that well i didn't really intend that but you know i'm happy for people to read into it however they want like that's also kind of a cop-out answer to me. So that he said that, I really admire that. Yeah, it really uh, endeared me to him, I'll be honest. Yeah, 100%. Right. So I do have a question about, you mentioned the montage, Joe, and they're using brooms to fight each other, and we get like mm-hmm. this really kind of... Definitely not a penis euphemism. What? <laughs> uh, but we, we get like this this castle, and all the brooms turn into swords and stuff. And right. I was wondering if either of you either had imaginary friends growing up or if you had like 
an overactive imagination. So I didn't have a proper imaginary friend that I, you know, played with or anything because I I had a very good relationship with my sister. So we spent a lot of time together or I was independently hanging out in my room. I read a lot as a child, but I remember I did create an imaginary friend when I was going on car trips and it was just like a way to entertain myself by looking out the window. There would be like this animated character that would like bounce and run along with the car. So that's kind of the closest I got, but it was very much like a Looney Tunes who framed Roger Rabbit. I love kind of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I did have an imaginary friend. His name was Luli. Okay. And I apparently invented him solely to blame things on him because oh. I would constantly draw my walls with crayon and I would constantly blame him. I mean, oh, Luli did it. I don't have any recollection, actually, of playing with Luli, but my parents said I did. Like, I 100% did. As a child and even as a teenager, I was very, very, like, creative and imaginative. That has been lost on me as an adult i'm very type a i'm very much like follow the rules a b c black white yes no right wrong um i'm type a and i still have way more imagination than that <laughs> no i know <laughs> i know, I know. Type a on your lack of imagination no sir. I, I, so, so for me specifically I, I i'm to this day still surprised that i had an imaginary friend because yeah apparently i did play with this little fucker and <laughs> I, I i lost i've lost i have since lost like well, it's every kid's movie it's every toy story or whatever where it's like oh i would be the villain in one of these children's movies because i'm the guy who used to be a fun child that was imaginative and mm. lost his sense of fun and is trying to kill everyone else's fun <laughs> with a sense of order. <laughs> but, 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 but yes, I, I, so long story short, I did. I, I had an imaginary friend named Luli, and I don't know if it was because I was lonely or anything. I, I don't know the causes for it. I've never really talked about it in therapy either because it just didn't seem like that important of a part of my life. But I'm reconsidering that now. <laughs> but you, you terry please i i read your review for this film and you have i believe some stories for us well i mean i i was just a very lonely kid like the first mm, about eight-ish years of my life i grew up in alaska introvert closeted queer kid at that i mean at that age i didn't know that you know what being gay was but i knew what I years was different. would this have been uh this would have been probably around like Mm, 84 maybe to 92 or 93 mm -hmm. is when I, we lived in Alaska. And so it would have been the, the first, like, I mean, I was born in 81. So it would have been in between fifth and sixth grade we moved. Um, so pretty much that entire time from when I was like three or so until fifth or sixth grade. But right. I had a hard time making friends. And up there in Alaska, like a lot of times people that live there were in the military. So they'd be shipping out. So by the time I actually made friends, they would be leaving. And so right. I never really had an imaginary friend, but I had a very overactive imagination. And the scene in particular where Luke and Daniel are sword fighting was like something that I did all the time, except I didn't think I was fighting someone. I just was out there slaying dragons and right. where it cuts to the mom looking in on him and he's just sort of swinging at the air. I'm like watching this going, oh, my God. People probably thought I was just that was you. <laughs> this little weirdo kid just swinging my sword out there in the streets of Alaska. <laughs> That's adorable, though. It really is. And I do actually want to say, Terry, A, it worked out. This is like like higher power shit. Because originally what this scene was going to be was Daniel and Luke building a sandcastle that would reach like a really tall height. Because the oh. rooftop climax at the end was originally going to be an inverse of that where they were both being sucked down into the roof as if it was quicksand. Oh. 
Mm. They did not have the budget for that. Right. So then it became sword fighting. I'm glad it did because it, it really just it well it spoke to me and I think I mean I think that's what a lot of kids do especially kids that you know have an overactive imagination mm-hmm. they'd be swinging you know whatever they mm-hmm. have a broom on board and be thinking you know this is a sword and I'm you know I mean did y'all ever play hot lava with yourself or with imaginary friends or with people because I 100 percent did <laughs> oh absolutely although for me <laughs> I would put pillows on the floor and I would walk on them because I was watching like shark documentaries on television Mm. i was terrified of touching Uh, the ground because a shark would get me so my sister and i bought the milton bradley i think it was milton bradley maybe it's parker brothers um but the jumanji game Mm. hey i was really mad that it wasn't awesome looking like the game in the movie uh it wasn't made of wood (laughs) (laughs) but but basically it was a thing where it's okay you like when you go on a space you draw a card and the card is like you know whatever creature comes out to get you my sister and I would, like, pretend like it was actually happening. So, like, if it was a piranha car, uh-huh. we'd be like, oh, my God, the room is flooding. Climb on the couch. Make sure you don't fall into the piranhas are going to get you. Like, that's my imagination. That's imagination for go. kids. Yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> so, in the film, this is all good and fine. Until Daniel overhears Claire, the mom, saying that just the two of them are going to be fine. And of course, she's talking about her and Luke. And Mm -hmm. this doesn't sit well with Daniel. He does not like to be left out. So this is when he convinces Luke to poison her. This, uh, what a way to open a film, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's really rough to watch, if only because it's so obvious that Luke has no idea what's happening. And... You really get the sense, okay, immediately, if you're reading this film as an example of Luke is suffering from some kind of mental illness, it really becomes harder to make that argument even this early in the film because your overactive imagination would not lie to you to poison your mother. Yeah, and I even think visually speaking, like, you know, we get the camera that zooms into the blender, so we get this kind of, like, you know, little swirl of the smoothie. That, to me, even ties it into the cosmic horror roots of the story in general. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole film has all of those kinds of shots, like, embedded throughout, just to remind you at all times, don't forget that this is a component of this film. Well, and that's what I was, I mean, like, you know, I realized it it may have sounded harsh when I was like, oh, Mortimer's a better director than he is a writer. But, like, watch the camera in this movie. Yeah. Mortimer and his cinematographer, uh, Lyle Vincent, they know how to use a camera. And I do want to point out, too, Lyle Vincent's credits, um, besides Cooties, which, meh, he's done The Bad Batch, Thoroughbreds, and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. So, like, you've got Mortimer paired with a very accomplished cinematographer here, and it shows in this film. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have a plot recap for us to go through. But honestly, so much of this film is encapsulated in the visuals and the way the camera yeah. moves to the point where I'm like, yeah, we can talk about the story. But at the end of the day, you're missing things out if you just listen to us talk about it. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. So thankfully, Claire does not die from this, but she does get quite sick. And when she realizes that it's because of Daniel that she almost died, she encourages Luke to lock him away in his grandmother's dollhouse. And we get the really striking imagery of the lights flashing inside the dollhouse and Daniel banging on the door. I love this, not only for like the symbolism of it, but also because it's nice to see a parent that is working with the child on their level. 
Oh, you mean like she doesn't disbelieve him. She's like, okay, we're going to do this thing yeah. so that it doesn't become more of a problem. Yeah, like, I, obviously, I don't think for a second that she's sitting there going, okay, well, this this Daniel thing is real and he's like corrupting my son. It's like, okay, let me play with this on my son's level and just say, hey, Daniel is real. Let's lock him up away because he is a bad influence on you. I don't know. It, it endears me to this character that Masterson is playing so much. I mean, I think this is another kind of coded symptom that she is struggling from her own mental illness that she Mm -hmm. is willing to meet him halfway but also i'm like your son nearly poisoned you it's time to go into therapy (sighs) um yeah i'm I'm trying to think like i don't know how to like delicately address that (laughs) i just like i i yeah i i I agree with I, i agree with you i agree with you So we then jump ahead, and Luke is now a college student who is played by Miles Robbins, and he is visiting his now very clearly visually coded mentally ill mother. So I love that we can see how far the house has fallen into disrepair in the interceding years. There's just papers everywhere. It looks like it hasn't been cleaned in ages. And after this, he then goes to a club where he is very clearly isolated. He's not engaging with anybody. He does see a girl that he wants to approach, but when he tries to cross the dance floor, he has a kind of epileptic fit in which he hallucinates something, but you could write it off as he just reacted to the strobe lights. But what do y'all make of the faceless creatures he sees at the club? I mean, they're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I just didn't know who it was. Uh, remnants of Daniel's own mental illness or anxiety, even anxiety, like in a public place. Yeah, it was just giving me like Jacob's Ladder vibes. And also, I would say it kind of is what Daniel ultimately is revealed to be, but mm-hmm. in a more surreal nature. And like it's the the features haven't filled in yet, like sort of as if like it's it's that kind of a memory that's stuck there in his in his brain of, of what Daniel actually does look like. Mm hmm. And something like this, a scene like this, where we're seeing pre-Daniel Luke deal with demons of some sort, it's, I think, what maybe will fuel people's negative perception of the film and how the film treats mental illness. Because you can say, oh, like, yeah, Daniel is an embodiment of, of, of mental illness, blah, 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 blah. But there was already something there before Daniel got there. Or at least, like, since Daniel got there. Like, Daniel isn't the only demon that Luke is battling with. Yeah, like an imprint, maybe like he caught a glimpse of it when he was a child and he's been carrying it around ever since. Because you get the impression that Daniel imprints on people or he latches onto them, right? Like that's why once he's freed, he can't just be put back into the dollhouse. It's because he's actually forged this connection with Luke. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one thing I do want to mention is that you mentioned earlier about how this isn't all about the plot and whatnot, and Mm -hmm. it's the way that things are constructed. And there is one thing that I picked up on this watch, and it's because I was listening to this movie with noise-canceling headphones, is that that thudding (laughs) that Daniel does in that, and when he's locked away, continues Mm -hmm. into adulthood and continues up until the moment that he is released. So, like, the scenes where he is sitting up on the school and he's writing, you can kind of hear it in the background when he's walking down the street, his thudding when he's on the phone with his mom. There is a very quiet rhythmic thud thud of of daniel pounding waiting to get out oh wow and that's where these mental illness like metaphors allegories whatever you want to say they are that to me is the biggest okay this is what this movie is doing i've said before i don't suffer from mental i'm sorry i don't suffer from any diagnosed mental illness (laughs) but 
I can only imagine what it feels like to have one. And I think that this oral and visual representation of what this film is doing, again, if we're taking Daniel as a representation of mental illness, even though in the film he's literally like a demon, it's interesting, creative, and fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So when he wakes up from this bit, he decides that he is going to go and talk to somebody. So he reaches out to Dr. Cornelius Braun, who is played by Chikwadi Iwuji, and he talks a little bit about Daniel. So this is kind of a clarification that he remembers his childhood friend, but he doesn't go into detail about what actually happened with the poisoning of his mother. This scene in particular really stuck out at me this time because of the the language that's being used where he says that you know he can't faint like a victorian duchess so Mm -hmm. we have sort of gendered this idea of hysterics or this idea of um Mm -hmm. you know mental illness where you know he talks about it's almost it reminded me a little bit of like the whole like victorian phrase of i got the vapors or the Mm -hmm. vapors you know where people were just fainting and it was typically ascribed to women and so we have the situation where there's this character he obviously does not want to talk about this, but he's also a little bit afraid, but he's also kind of ingrained in this sort of toxic masculinity, patriarchal society that says men need to buck up. You can't be a, a wilting lily. You can't faint like a Victorian duchess. You have to just sort of own it and move on with your life. But of course, we know that he can't do that. But right. it's just it's interesting of this sort of gendered sociopolitical language that's being utilized here. Well, isn't this to the point where the doctor basically says like, not loosen up in those words exactly, but it's like um, submit, open up, which are typically not masculine traits, I guess I would say. Well, you can read a double meaning into it, right? Part of it is that Luke is not really living his life. He's very socially isolated. And the doctor is obviously saying, you know, go out there, live your life, loosen up, just open up and be, you know, be open to the universe and whatever it gives you. But yeah, it's also we often tell women that they need to lighten up and that they need to be looser and that they shouldn't be so wound up. Smile more. Right. I think it's also worth making the observation that uh, Miles Robbins, especially in comparison to Patrick Schwarzenegger, has a more soft kind of rounded face and like the hair is a little bit more floppish. So you can almost read a slightly coded feminine androgyny bit into it compared Mm. to especially Patrick Schwarzenegger. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So then after this, he has a literal run-in with his future paramour, skateboarder Cassie, who is played by Sasha Lane, and then got to the middle of the night where Luke can't sleep, so he gets up and he ends up unlocking the dollhouse. And you could read it as he's either hearing the banging and he's attracted to it, or that he's almost sleepwalking and doing it unconsciously. But then this immediately goes into the scene where his mother is revealed to be cutting herself and there's blood all over the walls and she's threatening to die by suicide with a pair of scissors. This is when we get Daniel in the bathtub, isn't it? With rose petals. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. We are really linking the uh, the romance happening between Daniel and Luke at this point. Like this, and this is where it starts, where it's like, I don't know how you cannot see this as homoerotic, because he is literally introduced naked in a bathtub with rose petals. Like, 
how much more romantic can that be? <laughs> What's interesting too, right? Because when Daniel actually begins commanding Luke and telling him how to solve the problem, he's fully clothed when he gets yeah. out of the bat. So mm-hmm. it's only this initial image where it's like, Hey girl, I'm back. Did you miss me? I'm I'm like a gift waiting for you here in the bathtub. It's kind of like the seduction though, right? Like, oh, yes. let me let me take off enough clothes just to like get you in. But once I've got you hook, line, and sinker, bam, sorry, clothes are back on. We're gonna play. <laughs> you turn into a leather daddy. <laughs> yeah, but this immediately sets up the kind of foundation of their adult relationship, which is that Daniel tells Luke what to say, and then it works out basically on his behalf so it gets the desired outcome and then that makes luke more amenable to then listen to what daniel has to say down the line so in this case it prevents his mother from further hurting herself but it's at the risk of threatening his own bodily self and that's something that daniel will repeatedly do he puts luke into physical danger well that's where this toxic masculinity observation though will come into play because it is constant throughout this film from when they were kids in the beginning but it's really starts amping up right here you mentioned seduction i do think that he is attempting different ways of trying to get luke's attention where it's like i'm going to be here naked or i'm going to be the cool and collected person that's helping you through this Mm -hmm. i'm going to give you everything you need or in the next scene when luke is cleaning up daniel wants to play and he's you know saying like you had such an imagination as a kid last time i saw you were bursting with it and now you want to be a lawyer wasn't your father a lawyer like the way that he is pelting luke with every little way that he can try to get in and sort of find his in Mm -hmm. at this point well i want to be boring for like literally 20 seconds in case people don't know what toxic masculinity is because i do think it's a term that's thrown around a lot and it may not you may, may not know what it is when you're saying it but it really applies here because basically what toxic masculinity is it's a way to refer to certain cultural norms that are associated with harm to society and men themselves i actually think it's a part that's left out a lot you know people think it's oh toxic masculinity is like bad for like other people but like, like non-men but it is really bad for men themselves traditional stereotypes of men as socially dominant along with related traits such as misogyny and homophobia can be considered toxic due in part to the promotion of violence including sexual assault and domestic violence and what we have here in this scene is domestic violence suicidal ideation and we haven't reached sexual assault yet but we're gonna get there very shortly yeah yeah Mm. This film has a very complicated relationship with sexualized violence in particular because in some ways it's negotiating areas of consent, but then it's also very clearly tiptoeing around that line. But yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about with the Sophie sex scene. Well, and that's also where we, I mean, like, you know, if you ever hear the boys will be boys, like, that's very much a, oh, like, we're, we're brushing off this really fucking shitty behavior with, oh, it's just how men are. Mm-hmm. So this is where Cassie re-enters the picture. It turns out that when she and Luke collided, he lost his wallet. So she's returning it as he's cleaning up, as you mentioned, Terry. And Daniel immediately takes notice of her. And he, once again, starts feeding Luke lines about what to say so that he can spend more time with her. But I love the way that Patrick Schwarzenegger plays this because... There's always something really lecherous about the way he looks at other people who come into Luke's life. It's almost like he wants to eat them or he's looking at potential future victims, but he's always got some kind of nefarious gleam in his eye. 
it's funny that you say that because I my one note about this scene was Daniel watches her like a shark. I wrote that down and then insist because like that's what he tells him. He's like, you need to insist and you need mm-hmm. to tell her that you're an artist, too. But the way he's watching her, you're absolutely right. It's kind of lecherous. It's definitely like a shark that is circling his prey. Yeah. Mm hmm. I think a very simplistic reading of the way that Daniel manhandles Luke is that he wants to live vicariously through him, and that often means in physical sensations, right? He wants him to do cocaine. He wants him to fuck women. But I think you can play that out metaphorically quite a bit further. So that's something that Mortimer actually hones in on a lot during his commentary is how much Daniel envies luke for being real for being able to feel things that's why right. we'll get the scene in a minute whenever whenever uh daniel is walking on the beach and the water's hitting his feet and i think luke even says like how, how does it feel and daniel doesn't know mm-hmm. i will confess i didn't get a lot of that from this film i didn't get a lot of oh daniel is mad because he's not a physical being and that's why he keeps going from person to person to person to feel these things Okay, But I thought it was interesting that Mortimer was so focused on that as Daniel's motivation. For me, I was like, oh, Daniel's a demon. He just does this because he's like the imp or whatever. So I don't know. I I never really thought of Daniel as, I don't want to say empathetic, but as as having like a little sad goal of his own, I guess. And I don't know if we want to talk about this now or or later when we get to, to these in particular scenes, but he talks about the fact that he is giving art to a bunch of people throughout history and they're taking credit for it and how angry that makes him. And so there is this, like, I feel like at this point in his life, in his existence of centuries and centuries of being that kind of mm, supernatural. He's almost like a muse, right? But he doesn't get credit for it. He doesn't get any credit for it. And to bring it all the way back to the beginning, that cloud that we see the beginning is described by Mortimer himself as the formless cloud of creation and destruction. So we are led to believe now that Daniel has been in existence since the be- the dawn of time, the dawn mm-hmm. of creation. Yeah, I'll have more about that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. All right, so we're, we're still really in the burgeoning situation with Luke and Cassie. So she ends up, yes, inviting him to this art show, but she is, <laughs> uh, when he walks up, she's already getting into a near fight with another artist and she's oh, kind yeah. of being thrown out, <laughs> you get the impression. So mm-hmm. they go back to her place, which is this gorgeous loft. Ah, oh, fuck, to be <laughs> a struggling young artist in New York City, apparently. Okay, she's saying all real artists are either dead or broke you can't make art in the city anymore and yet she is living in that gorgeous place enormous enormous new york apartment <laughs> like i'm sorry i have seen a perfect murder and this is Viggo mortensen's art uh yes. loft and she is no Viggo mortensen <laughs> also fun fact so apparently when making a film uh in the states if you build a set, you get a tax credit for it. And a set is defined simply as three walls. So Cassie's oh art gosh. installation, her exhibit, is mm-hmm. a set that was written off for tax credits. <laughs> uh, oh, like her her little thing with the toilet and the cat? Yeah. The cat box <laughs> art. <laughs> I love that. That is amazing. And also very creative. Aspiring filmmakers, take note. There you go. So, yeah, I I do love these early scenes because you almost forget that this is a horror movie or that there's this nefarious demon lurking around Luke because we just get to see this montage of them destroying her art, talking about her art, and it 
it has a sense of play and fun that you get the impression Luke has not experienced in a very, very long time. Right. It's invigorating. It, absolutely. But we also get a little bit of exposition about Daniel in the scene because he mentions, and it, it's a throwaway line, but on rewatch, when you start to learn what we're going to talk about later, where Daniel says, William Blake said his poetry was yeah. a dictation from an archangel, but really he was just gifted. Just like you. Like, first of all, this is manipulation. This is him feeding into the ego Mm -hmm. of Luke. But it's also, I will say, I think that in this this movie and in this universe, Daniel is the voice that gave the art to William Blake. He did Hieronymus Botch. He did the Bible. I think all of this stuff is coming from him. Mm -hmm. And there's Mm. a real insinuation of, like, angels and demons here. Because, folks, we talked a little bit about William Blake when we talked about St. Maud on the Patreon earlier this year. I also Mm. always think of the William Blake Red Dragon arc. I was saying, he just used Red Dragon, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Even the word gifted to me is like, he bestows this gift upon saints and religious deities. So in a way... It not only strokes Luke's ego, but it raises him up to the point that, oh, he is going to be murdered for this because that's what happens to saints. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So speaking of being gifted, the audience is then gifted with the Mm. beautiful Mm. torso of one Patrick Schwarzenegger when he takes off his shirt so that Luke can cheat off of all of the equations on his body during a test. This whole sequence, so A, it's like, oh, look at him, they're being clever, whatever. But it's also, like, it is so sexual, because the way that they're both smiling at each other, and Daniel is just, like, rubbing all over his body, like, oh, the answer's here, Mm, Mr. It's on my shoulder, it's on my peck. And then he waggles his eyebrows, like, coquettishly, like, Mm -hmm. it's so sexy. It's fuck eyes for days, yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. If cheating was only this sexy, I would have cheated a lot more <laughs> in college. I mean, you know, it's cheating in two ways. I mean, he's not dating Cassie yet, but, you know, he's already, whatever relationship has started between them, he's already emotionally cheating on her with Daniel. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's 100% true. It is true. I will just say this right now. I have not seen Sasha Lane in American Honey, which is the reason she got this role, and I've heard she's amazing in that film. This character of Cassie is such a non-entity to me because she is just like it's almost like in a rom-com when you have the other woman but it's like okay well you know that she's not really important in the long run you know yeah Mm -hmm. yeah she's the wrong partner she's the one that Luke should not end up with because he has much better chemistry with Daniel even though you know they're kind of fire and water and you know they shouldn't be together but oh my god I was gonna say it reminds me of Gossip Girl when (laughs) fucking Blair and chuck got together yeah. i'm gonna cut that part out because that yeah, was I don't know the names. <laughs> although i've heard, i've seen your thing saying the new one's bad oh it's definitely not good uh <laughs> yeah sasha lane is interesting in this like i actually find her quite personable but you're right that cassie almost feels underwritten so that you just think of her as oh she is the right partner she's the good girl that but she's boring should be after and, and this is no fault of lane I am not impressed with Lane in this movie, but it's not really through any fault of her own. It's just that this role is honestly kind of a nothing role for me. It's the white bread to Daniel's anything else. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) And we were about to get to a bunch of cocaine, so we can say cocaine, but... (laughs) 
Uh, sort of, yeah. So Luke is definitely coming out of his shell. We get a bit of a montage where he and Daniel are having lots of fun. So he's pranking his roommate Richard, played by Andrew Bridges. He's developing his photography skills. He's hitting on psychology student Sophie, who is played by Hannah Marks. And I feel like this is a little on the nose, but it's still playful, where Daniel encourages Luke to refer to her as Louise Brooks in her famous role, Pandora's Box, which is like, (laughs) oh, gee, is that what the dollhouse is meant to represent? It's the box you shouldn't open, and once you do, you can't put the genie back in? I do think a lot of this is not surface level, but it it is a little on the nose. But we've used that as critiques before, Joe, and I'm sure you have too, Terry, but... I think it's using a lot of visual language and a lot of things that we have experienced in film, because obviously you mentioned the the kind of prank of Richard, his his roommate. Right. But like the scene where Daniel is hanging upside down in front of his face just immediately brought to mind Drop Dead Fred. Yeah. The imaginary friend movie from like the what late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. So there's that aspect of it. There's there's the kind of Fight Club-esque comparison between the two of them. Yeah. There's visual language here, and there are plot points that I think he is using as kind of shorthand in order to not tie down the plot, because this movie is paced incredibly well, mm-hmm. I think. And I think that if we had spent more time trying to dig a little bit deeper into things, it probably would slow down the actual feel of this film. So I do think he's relying on visual language and, and motifs that we are mm-hmm. familiar with. It's like a shorthand. So it's like, yeah. here, I'm giving you what you need so that we can just move on, because I know that you'll be right. able to pick it up. That's so fascinating because I saw a letterbox review from someone that was like, "Ugh, it was really boring until the twist halfway through, and then it was better." And what I was like, twist? The "Twist halfway through." <laughs> I, 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 I think, I think what this person was talking about was the reveal later that that Daniel was also the imaginary friend of the person who died by suicide in the beginning. I was like, "Well, that's like uh-huh. an hour into this ninety-minute movie, but yeah, sure, I guess you can say that if you want to." <laughs> I definitely would not call that a twist, but okay. I don't think so either. <laughs> maybe they just needed more excitement i don't know i mean maybe they're wrong yeah okay so particularly in this scene we see daniel looking at luke and sophie in the same way that he looks at cassie where he wants to make a physical connection happen because he wants to be involved in that and it's very important that this is also when luke gets exceedingly drunk at this party And we see for the first time that Daniel is able to physically manipulate him and he actually makes Luke self-harm. Yeah, what I loved about this this sequence in particular is, I mean, this is the moment that Daniel is smiling when when he is egging uh, Luke on to chug, 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 and Mm -hmm. he gets really drunk and then he's vomiting. And he's like, I fucked up. And he's like, no, you did great. And he has this smile of like, look at my art. Look what I have created. Look what I have made you do. Yeah, that no one else could make you do. And so it's also this idea that Luke is coming around to him, but also we get that exposition of being able to actually control him, as you said, with the the straight edge. And it's, it's also a moment between this and when Daniel is in the classroom and he's, you know, helping him cheat that we see that he can do things to himself and he can do things to Luke, but he can't do anything to the other outside world. Mm -hmm. He has to use Luke in order to do stuff. I'm interested. Do you think that he can control Luke before this point? Because I always read it as he needs to make Luke malleable. So he needs to get him drunk or high or when he's sleeping. So it's like he can't be using his higher functions in order for Daniel to take control. No, you're you're right. What I guess what I mean in terms of controlling him is that he is making him do things. Right. Yeah. Suggestion and advice. Suggestion, sort of right? Like, you know, I want you to do this and he's going to go do it. And so even without embodying him, he is making him do stuff. Right. Yes, absolutely. 
so we then come back to Cassie. We have a bit of a fun break and enter bookstore date, which I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh, that sounds like super fun. Just getting to go into a bookstore. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course y'all would. <laughs> getting to go in and just peruse books when nobody else is there and like reading passages. I don't know. It was, it was fun, but it also starts to hint at the darker side. But then they go and grab where the wild things are. Like, okay, movie. Again, yes. <laughs> It's funny, right? Because the these things are the really explicit things, and they're the ones that we're kind of groaning at. But I think you're right. right, Terry. It's the visual stuff. It's landing far more successfully because you could miss it. It's not quite as obvious. Well, because we haven't really talked about Daniel as Luke's like darker. I mean, okay, obviously he is his darker half, but he's not actually like Luke, right? <laughs> Do y'all maybe think that Daniel is representative of Luke's actual id? I think you could definitely read it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it's like the id that Luke has repressed, which Daniel is able to say, no, you need to let this out. You need to be more like me. Right. Yeah. Oh, that was a conversation killer. Sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. I said the smart thing. That was that was it for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm done. I used the word id in a sentence. There we go. So this is all going fine. And then we end up getting this sequence where Cassie says that she wants to paint Luke. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we get the sense that Daniel doesn't like being ignored, but he also doesn't like it when he's not the center of attention. I will not be ignored, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that his name in Fatal Attraction? (laughs) It might be. I think it is. But yeah, no, she, she paints a picture of him and Daniel's true form is reflected in a shadow in this painting Mm -hmm. yeah and that of course becomes a plot point later on but also we need to note that this finally gets luke a little bit of nookie so we we get a sex scene here okay so i I don't want to keep going back but the 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 scene before she paints him where they're in the bookstore Mm -hmm. and daniel starts quoting the bible and quoting exodus 20 getting really angry he is he is quoting it as if he wrote it and this is where i'm i was starting to think about the fact that you know the bible this is implying that he wrote this that he was the muse Uh... of whoever wrote the bible because he is quoting it by memory and he also is getting very angry because it's all about how you know there is only one god and to luke daniel wants to be that one god and so the fact that luke is making a joke out of it Hmm. both is insulting his work that he wrote this and b is also you know disproving the fact that daniel is his god and so this scene following into we deserve to be immortalized and luke saying you think i deserve to be immortalized is this kind of this this is the turning point where daniel is like no fuck this i am tired of being the muse that is constantly being ignored right it's my turn to shine and see, the film presents Daniel as almost like a godlike figure, right? E- even in his true form, this horrific-looking monster. I actually always view him, especially because we're talking about toxic masculinity, I view him as something as like a court jester who is trying to be a god but is not. Like, uh, there's a Clive Barker story called The Yattering and Jack where this like little thing keeps like fucking with this guy's life. And that's how I view Daniel. Like, he's not this head demon in the hierarchy of wherever the fuck he's from. He is low level and that's contributing to why he's so 
much of an asshole. Uh, that's so interesting because I read him as a king in his own court, which is why he has the kind of crown, but then he can't make that a reality in our world. And that's why he's so pissed off is like he has all the power and the privilege, but he can't make it translate over. See, I do view him as a king in his own court, but a court that he built that no one else is a part of. Hmm. Well, doesn't this also kind of tie into the idea of toxic masculinity? Well, you know, oh, one hundred yeah. percent, <laughs> and that's why I, I mean, again, like obviously, anyone can be toxically masculine. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think mostly men. <laughs> I want to point out with the scene that we're all talking about, though, when they're kind of on their date right before this, uh, this where the wild things part is. There's a scene where they're uh, where Cassie and 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 Luke are like in a school bus, kind of walking around. Right. There was an entire scene that basically they could not film. It was supposed to be where Cassie and Luke stole a tugboat together. They go off into the ocean. Daniel gets hit in the face by a beam of some sort, and it takes the top half of his head off, and his brain is exposed. And you kind of get to know a little bit more about Daniel. But basically, when they were going to film this, it was thunderstorming. And there's a rule. They didn't have the insurance for it. But like there's a rule where it's like, you cannot shoot on the water on a boat within 30 minutes of lightning striking. Yeah. And the lightning kept striking. So they basically had to scrap this entire day of three pages of shooting for a scene that Mortimer really, really wanted in this movie. And they had to substitute it with a five-second shot of them playing in a bus. That is so funny because you describing it sounds like a very interesting scene. But I also feel like that would have really hindered the pacing. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. And it might be something where it's like, oh, maybe in practice, like seeing it happen... Right. It would hit differently, but yeah, hearing it, I'm like, well, that just seems like a lot of a detour <laughs> for this movie to take. <laughs> yeah, I think we get just enough information about who or what Daniel is. Like, I love that we're able to speculate and have these multiple readings. I don't know that I want to learn too much more about who or what he is or where he comes from. Like, to me, the power of the film is in that unknowing. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yes. I also do think the five second scene kind of ties a little bit into one of the things I noticed on this watch is when we're first introduced to to Cassie, she almost has like little pigtails. She has like this overgrown coat. She's mm-hmm. skateboarding. She's very kid like. Yeah. And so the fact that, you know, she's talking about the, where the wild things are. And we're, again, we're talking about a kid that's misbehaving and the fact that they're playing around school buses. Mm-hmm. It gives their their relationship a very kind of childlike wonder and whimsy to it that is being upset by this authoritarian figure. Well, mm-hmm. it's also evocative of the relationship that Luke and Daniel used to have and no longer yes. do, right? It's what Daniel's trying to get Luke back to. And here it's just coming effortlessly with this fucking girl. Yep. <laughs> well, and moving forward then to the nookie that you were describing, Joe. So M- Mortimer's pretty upfront about like, yeah, I totally use this as influence. I ripped this off. He even says, I ripped off the exorcist in the scene. Where, <laughs> okay. He's like, oh yeah, the iconic exorcist shot. Yeah, we totally copied that for whenever Dr. Braun comes in later for the deep throating scene. Right. And he's like, oh, yeah, and people are always like, oh, it's Cronenberg. Like, you're taking from a lot of Cronenberg because the body horror when the faces merge together. And he's like, well, hmm. I mean, there is Cronenberg influences, but the biggest Cronenberg influence for me is with the sex scene. And it's not from a film you would expect. It's from a history of history violence. History of violence, yeah. Yes. And he's like, there is there are two sex scenes in that movie between the same characters, and one is very loving and innocent, and the other is not yeah and that is 100 what he was trying to mirror in his sex scene with cassie here and his i'm gonna say sex scene but some may qualify it as rape assault and rape of some sort with uh with sophie later yeah interesting i can see it 
definitely. And folks, if you have not seen A History of Violence, A-plus recommendation. It's so good. Need to watch it. I was going to say, Terry, that was for you. <laughs> <laughs> we literally just talked about it on Tuesday. Oh, <laughs> uh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so we, after this fucking scene, we actually get a very important transition. So there's a repeated glimpse of the maelstrom and then calls for help from the dollhouse. So there's a, an insinuation that there's somebody else in there. And then we transition back to then Sophie and her friend arriving to do coke with Luke and his roommate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, th- this is a happening dorm room right here. <laughs> it is. And we also get Daniel because Daniel obviously hates Richard. And he points to, again, that I mentioned earlier, the kind of triptych of the Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. He points to that picture there and he's like, he kind of reminds me of these guys and he's pointing to the the triptych part that is of hell. So like there there is this this image here that is eventually repeated later of like, this is that art. This is what we're we're moving into at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we, we are literally about to go subterranean. We are <laughs> about to go into <laughs> red lit steam tunnels. Yeah. I also feel like we should note, not that Trace will be able to contribute anything to this, but because <laughs> it's about costuming. <laughs> okay. So Daniel is dressed in the most ridiculously ostentatious outfit. It looks like he's wearing plum, almost like silk pants. And then he's got a see-through leopard button up and then uh, some kind of jacket. But it's just, it's the most just the most outfit i think i have seen a male character wear in a very long time and then he follows it up later with an almost like geisha type kind of gown later Mm -hmm. on that he's wearing it's his costume is just it's perfect in this movie it's like it's weird because he is this hyper masculine character but then he also has this this flair of androgyny to him Mm -hmm. I like to think that that's a reflection of who Luke is. So he's mirroring the clothes based on the particular moment. So in this case, he's looking to be almost like a fashion supermodel because he's planning his seduction where he is finally going to get to fuck someone. And then later, he's wearing the kind of like geisha kimono relaxation when he goes to the fucking institute. That's when they visit Claire, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so down we go into the tunnels. This is where Luke resists Daniel's influence and he gets really annoyed. So he says, well, why don't you just let me take over? And this Mm. is an interesting piece considering if you want to read it, a rape scene that we're about to get with Sophie. This is Daniel asking Luke for consent to take over his body and Luke gives it to him. Which kind of mirrors the sex scene from earlier. We, we, we did gloss over this, actually, but I love it. Uh, Luke does ask Cassie for consent mm-hmm. when they're having sex. Which mm-hmm. I loved. I love it in a movie when a, man, when a man asks for consent. It's so hot. And Mortimer talks about this in the commentary. He's like, yeah, we wanted to have this. But people were like, how do you make that not awkward? And he was like, well, what, we just do it. Like, we just have Daniel say, is this okay? Mm-hmm. And Cassie says yes or no. And, of course, in this case, she says yes. It was so hot. <laughs> yes contrasted with the scene we're about to get right 
which is coke fuel, which also I'm just kind of like, dude, you've been doing so much cocaine tonight. Your dick is not getting hard, but maybe with the power of Daniel, <laughs> like <laughs> maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, are you saying that the power of Daniel compels your dick? The power of Daniel. I mean, look, coke may make you, I mean, as someone who has not had any experience with cocaine, uh, it, 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 it may make you horny, but it is not making you hard. <laughs> not that kind of stimulant got it the power of daniel <laughs> well maybe you just need to have a face wormy assimilation makeout session with your imaginary friend before you do it yeah well that's the thing too right so we're saying there's two sex scenes this swap mm-hmm. of luke and daniel is essentially a sex scene in and of itself oh yeah and it is yeah <laughs> it's, i mean it's great in the sense of like visually it is stunning but yeah. it's also i mean well I, we can't even call this a rape because daniel i'm sorry because luke does let daniel in yeah and also this is very clearly a homage to hellraiser bloodline right am i right folks you know trace this would help <laughs> if you actually laughed at the jokes like <laughs> i was like wait what happened to hellraiser bloodline no no, no yeah yeah no, the, the, the guy becomes two centibytes he, he, he merges with another centibyte totally yes. makes sense <laughs> oh okay i've not seen it <laughs> terry you oh disappoint God. that was my fucking birthday pick terry yeah God that was damn. that was a birthday <laughs> <laughs> You know what, Terry? Get off the podcast. You're dead to me. (laughs) Oh. Okay. So Daniel has taken over Luke's body. At this point, he is now in control. This rightfully freaks out uh, Luke. And when he tries to regain control, he almost loses his hand. It's like he slices through it and it's just attached by like, I mean, a bit of a limp wrist, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then we get Daniel as Luke very vigorously having sex with sophie i mean she's not protesting but he's so aggressive that it's hard not to read it as an assault no that's the thing i mean technically quote unquote it's not a rape because she does say yes she gives her consent but the manner it's one of those things i don't know if she consented to the to the method Mm -hmm. of penetration here it's just him pumping away standing up shirt on butt showing from underneath the shirt very cute butt (laughs) but it is so uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. And even when, when they're done, like, she doesn't give an inkling that it's like, oh, she's not okay with this until he harms the roommate. Yeah. Yeah. He actually pushes his face up against a hot pipe or the hot wall. And you're just like, oh, wow. So we've got two different forms of assault back to back. And then, you know, she hits him with the chair. Also, we should we should point out the line of dialogue that Daniel gives when he's trying to get into Luke, which is, it's not cheating if it's with me. That's like a closeted married gay yep. man who's married to a woman, and he's fooling around with his male lover. And so, oh, it's not cheating because we're, we're, we're both straight. <laughs> yeah, it's just on the DL. <laughs> yes, 100%. It's not cheating. It's not cheating. It's another person, but it's not cheating. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It seems like a bit of a reach, guys. Come on. okay so this is where luke has definitely had enough he no longer wants daniel around and he says i'm gonna close my eyes i'm gonna count to three and you're gonna disappear and this is really where patrick schwarzenegger turns up the kind of haha fuck you i'm not going anywhere kind of charm (laughs) it's really great it's very uncomfortable Daniel refuses to go back into the dollhouse, even when Luke demands it. And I I got really uncomfortable considering the dialogue that we're having around mental health in this movie, where Daniel says that Luke is too crazy for him to go back. Yeah, I at this point, I, I think Daniel is 
taunting him, trying yes. to get him to kill himself. Oh. Because okay. at this point, when Luke is saying one, two, three, and he opens his eyes and Daniel's like right in front of him, he says, you might as well cut your own head off. Mm. Like he is using very violent language to put into Luke's mind about like, there's only one way you're going to get rid of me. Do you think that's because whenever Daniel, I mean, again, this is just me speculating here, but like, because whenever Daniel latches onto someone, he is stuck with them until they die. And he's like, I am done with you. I have used your resources. Time to move on to someone else. Well, I was kind of wondering about this because the, I mean, the opening scene of the movie is, of course, the very violent murder mm -hmm. ring that happens at the diner that we, you know, later on learn is, is Daniel's work. And I kind of wonder if, if Daniel is at this point just bored with everything where he is right. basically just fucking around with people until they kill things and that is what he is saying is art now because right as as we'll see later he has like his little own exhibit and the the exhibit is the gun that that the guy used and it is this piece of art it is Hieronymus Bosch's piece of art up on the wall so I think at this point in his in his life he is just like I'm tired of people using me for being amused I'm just gonna fuck with everybody and I that's how I I interpret it at this time hmm. Hmm. all right I will subscribe to that with you <laughs> yeah because I've, I've always wondered what daniel's end goal is because i think on the first watch i definitely just thought oh he just wants to get inside of luke so that he can be corporeal <laughs> and experience all of these things yeah. but the more you start to think about it he's very much an agent of chaos right like he wants to oh my God. spin anarchy i was mm -hmm. gonna say that but i was afraid it was too jokery I mean, it kind of is, right? Like, because he's he's a jokester in a lot of the ways yeah. that he goes about this. He's Machiavellian, but he's also like, I want to play pranks. Well, coincidentally enough, whenever we get da uh, Luke's makeover at the end, whenever Daniel fully takes him over, mm -hmm. they intentionally put him in a red suit because they were going to do purple, and they were like, oh, purple oh, is too, too jokery. <laughs> but, but, but this comes out December of 2019, and so by the time, and this is like after the festival premiere, by that time, Joker had yeah. come out, and Joaquin mm. Phoenix was all in red outfits, and Mortimer was like, are you fucking Mother kidding me? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I swear, I've had this lookbook for years. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is where Luke checks back in with his mother, Claire. She is at an institution where she's been since she tried to harm herself and we get a bit of background about her struggles with mental health so she had them at age 20 which we're meant to believe is right around the age that luke is at and she can sense that something is wrong with him but he can't confide in her because daniel is just fucking yammering in his ear yep it's really, really sad because Claire knows something is wrong, but she comes off looking like she's having some kind yep. of episode, so she just gets dragged away. And she's out of the movie at this point. And this yeah. is like, I mean, I don't know where else we could put this character in this movie, but mm. I wanted to spend more time with this character because in the film, she is the only one that, I mean, she doesn't know what Daniel's going through, but she is the one that is most likely to relate to him. Right. Yeah, because we've already seen her being sympathetic to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think she also sees that there's something else other than uh, mental issues plaguing him because she, she talks about, like, you're trapped, you're in trouble, there's something going on here. And I think she sees that there is something that has attached itself to Daniel. But the irony, of course, is that the more she tries to talk about it, the more people are going to use the gender term again about hysterical because the doctors are pulling her away, saying, you know, like, oh, 
it's yeah. obviously they're going to go up her medication at this point because they think that she is acting out again. And it goes back to that that opening line of with the uh, therapist in the beginning where, you know, he's like saying, I don't want to faint like a Victorian duchess. It's this idea of th that women are going to be hysterical. And here we have, again, a woman that is trying to, to stop and trying to help her son. And she's being deemed as like mentally unfit. Well, it's fascinating that you say that, Terry, because upon reflection, I realize that every woman in this film actually notices that there is something that's attached or that there's a darker side to Luke. Mm. So Cassie notices it, uh, Sophie comments on it, and then Claire also notices it here, and yet none of the men in the movie see it. So it's right. like women who are often accused of being hysterical are also the ones who are most adept at spotting it in other people, even if it happens to be Luke. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so yes, we do have a repeat visit with Dr. Braun, and this is where Luke worries that he is schizophrenic. We get a bit of a diagnosis. This is intercut with a confrontation with Sophie on campus. So he's been removed from campus. He's not allowed to be there. And... I always forget about the scene where Daniel cuts up Sophie and the blood oh, yeah. sprays all over Luke's face. Yeah. Ooh, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy, but mm -hmm. it's still like, Ooh, like when it happens, you're just like, Oh my sh oh, shit. <laughs> What's well, an escalation of what Daniel is capable of. He previously hasn't been able to give Luke visions of anything. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I think that that's testament that his control over Luke is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. Yes. Luke's defenses are weakening. Yeah, because we're also getting pictures that Luke has apparently sent to Cassie, but they're taken while he's sleeping. And then, of course, there's the foreshadowy moment where we see Daniel is actually prying open Luke's mouth and trying to kind of gently climb inside at the bookstore before Luke wakes up. Not loose enough yet. Needs some more poppers. Exactly. <laughs> if you can't get the whole fist in there, then you need to keep working at it. Yep. Loosen it up, baby. Oh, God. <clears throat> <laughs> All right, so Luke begins taking medication for schizophrenia against Daniel's wishes, but the pills don't seem to be doing anything, at least not in the area of controlling Daniel. Could y'all imagine a version of this film, and I imagine in like the late 90s, early 2000s, it might have been like this, but where it actually is, quote-unquote, just schizophrenia? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that would have played a lot worse. <laughs> oh, fuck, yeah. I actually think that there's a number of people who don't like this movie because they feel like it's even treading in that direction, even right. though I would argue it's not. Like, mm -hmm. it's not going full hog there. Yeah, but I think yeah, for yeah. some people, it's still too much. Like, they don't like the conflation of demons and mental illness. And yeah, and I, I disagree with that reading. But yeah, I mean, again, like, it's not wrong. Like, if, if that's what you think, that's that is it. It's difficult because watching this, I, I can absolutely see some complaints about about that aspect of it. And I, people wouldn't be wrong in that in that regard, I don't think. But mm -hmm. I think I do think Adam is pulling from a history of the, the connection and whether it's true or not, because I've I went and did some research and I can't find anything <laughs> in psychology that is either refuting it or saying that it is that it is true. But this idea that we have seen throughout 
history of entertainment of mental illness or madness and genius. Mm. And we have this aspect because he, he specifically brings up William Blake and William Blake People thought he was a madman back in the day because he would say that he got all of his stuff from from this archangel. And that's something that is brought up in this movie. So we have this idea of the madness mixed with genius. And that right. seems to be the sort of fold or lens that Adam is using to explore these two characters. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, too, because we get the sense that if left alone, Luke could actually be quite a great photographer. It's something mm-hmm. that Daniel awakens in him when he encourages him to not be a lawyer and to go and explore something more creative, initially under the guise of impressing Cassie. But we see the photos that Luke takes later, and it is clear that he has a gift. So there's a gentle insinuation that Luke could be a talented, maybe not prodigy, but that he does have great art within him. Yeah. So this is when Luke goes to visit Percy Thigpen, who is played by Peter McRobbie, and he is the father of the shooter from the coffee house at the opening. And what a last name! I, I was a, that is a that is a name, <laughs> Thigpen. So John was the shooter, and it turns out, of course, when we start to dig into his documents and the things that he had as a child, oh look, there's drawings of an imaginary friend named Daniel. Bum, bum, bum. Mm-hmm. Twist. <laughs> oh my god, a twist. I love the, the twist. The twist, halfway through the movie. Actually, <laughs> two-thirds of the way, but yes. <laughs> but I do think that this is really where the film takes on more of those cosmic appreciations. Like, you could argue that it's a bit of a simple story about a boy struggling with his own personal demons, whether you want to call it mental illness or whether you want to call it literal up until this right. point. And then here it really takes on... I mean, Terry, I think you've done a great job of unpacking the agelessness of Daniel and how that reverberates through history. But up until this point, we could say, oh, those those are just readings. But here we get confirmation. Oh, yeah, this thing is a fucking body hopper through the ages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just think it kind of elevates the story up into a whole new level. That's the thing. This isn't really a twist for me. It's just a reveal. Mm hmm. Yeah, it deepens the mythology and it deepens the story we're seeing. It doesn't, like, have an incredible impact on what I've been seeing. Like, it doesn't... It doesn't change, it just enriches. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. So this is where Luke then tries to confide in Cassie because he's not only worried about her, but I think he's looking for some kind of outlet. Like, he feels like he is going mad and he wants to confide in somebody the problem is is that he keeps saying things like he's going to kill you (laughs) and when (laughs) you're saying that to a girl it's just hard to not have her be scared of you a little bit yeah (laughs) uh okay so now we get the moment that people often focus on when they talk about this movie so dr braun shows up at the house and he says he's going to hypnotize luke and have a conversation with this daniel and then we get the scene the scene that you talked about off the top there trace i mean this is the deep throating scene i almost view it as a new nightmare homage kind of when like when freddy's trying to eat heather langenkamp's son i mean to describe to y'all what this was like to watch in a sold out south by southwest theater as this scene was unfolding Mm -hmm. oh my god i mean it's horrifying it's gross it looks great it looks so fucking good so good (laughs) yeah 
And, and what they had was they had a couch with a hole in it that they had the effect of Miles Robbins' you know, elongated mouth mm-hmm. that they would just have Schwarzenegger climb into. And I was like, oh my god. Like, you say it, it's like, oh yeah, it's easy as pie. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm just imagining the prop master having to come in with this giant, like, sofa size <laughs> version of Miles Robbins' mouth. Like, can I take that home at the end of the shoot? <laughs> and if we're talking about, you know, queer theory or queer readings on this, you know, so yeah, they, they merge faces earlier, so they're swapping head. <laughs> but in, in this this one, it is full-on penetration. Like, we are yeah. having a non-consensual sex scene. This is a rape. Yes. Between Daniel and Luke. And it is haunting, it's upsetting, it's so gross, but it's so pretty. Oh, maybe that's the wrong choice of words to use. No, I think there's beauty to be found in disgusting visceral imagery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I also think it's interesting that you brought up A New Nightmare because I was immediately at the scene thinking about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, where Mm -hmm. Freddy's like, you're the body, I am the brain. And this is literally the dynamic between the two where Daniel thinks of himself as that, that muse, that intelligence, that art, that power, that creativity. And he just sees Luke as the sort of physical manifestation that he can operate through. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, there's an off repeated line of dialogue in this movie, which is that they keep commanding each other to get in to the dollhouse. But really it does remind me of that line that Jesse says in nightmare on Elm street too, where it's like, he wants to get back inside me or whatever. Oh, he's inside me, and he wants to take me again. Exactly. There we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really uncomfortable. He doesn't say it to Luke, but Daniel definitely tells Dr. Braun, this is going to be really painful for you. Oh, yeah. It's like, ugh, the connotations. <laughs> I was genuinely bummed, if not surprised. That <laughs> Sorry. We, we lose Braun so early. In, I mean, early. It's late in the film, but it's like, Oh, you're showing up just to die. <laughs> I mean, I don't love the fact that we have two people of color in this movie. There's Sasha right. Lane and then there's uh, this actor. I don't love that he shows up just to get murdered because as we've talked about numerous times, there's a really bad trope with that. But yeah. in this case, I do kind of love that it's a figure of authority who didn't believe Luke when he told him, hey, I've got this problem. He was like, ah, I'm sure it's fine. Don't worry. But when he shows up, though, he does believe him, right? I feel like he doesn't believe that something is actually happening. I think that he believes Luke is having a fit. And then he sees Daniel. Daniel somehow reveals himself because Luke is asleep, presumably. Well, the doctor says that he wants to bring them both into hypnosis. So I think there is like that kind of connective tissue, like they're Mm. both sharing a hypnosis together. And that's why he can see him. Maybe it's a thing like with the mom in the beginning where it's like, okay, she doesn't really believe in Daniel, but she's working on Luke's level to be like, okay, well, he believes in Daniel, so I'm going to do this to make it so it works for him. Right. And then under hypnosis, he's actually then able to see what he hasn't been able to see before. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's interesting, too. This is the only scene in the film where Daniel is clearly talking to Luke, but we as an audience are in Dr. Braun's position, so we don't see him because we just have Luke saying, oh, he's saying some truly nasty stuff right now. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Also, to bring it back to the costuming, this is the first time I also noticed that uh, Daniel is wearing a necklace that has that sort of crowny thing that Cassie was drawing and that eventually is his head. He has a necklace that is literally that. <laughs> oh my god, he's wearing his own jewelry line. <laughs> he is. Gross. Sick. What a good brand. <laughs> oh my god, guys, it's like de jewelry. <laughs> That's for all five of you who got that one. 
I will say that if we're talking about the makeup effects of Daniel's true form, the makeup effects and creature design were actually done by Martin Assels. And Joe, you'll be inclined, you'll be impressed to know that he got his start working on Event Horizon. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say a Hellraiser movie, but I'll take it. Yay, Event Horizon. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but he would go on to do uh, effect, makeup effects for films like Bride and Seed of Chucky, okay. House of a Thousand Corpses, previous episode I Know Who Killed Me, and the upcoming reboot of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. That Although, is a good filmography. Here you go, Joe. He was a technician on Hellraiser 3. Yeah! Bam! There you go. <laughs> I feel like there are so many makeup and effects artists who are tied to the Hellraiser franchise. It just always kind of boggles my mind. I mean, if you're a makeup effects artist and you're not working in the horror genre, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, you're doing Glenn Close's prosthetics for that hillbilly elegy bullshit. <laughs> no one remembers what that movie is, Joe. <laughs> uh, she was nominated for a Golden Glow. <laughs> or she won maybe oh anyway okay so this is where we get the fantastic makeover scene which again is like okay so we are coding luke as yep. like the the de facto lead of our rom-com like give him a makeover give him a red suit slick back that hair all he needed was to get another man inside of him and all of a sudden he's a fashionista <laughs> exactly she's letting her freak flag I do love the way that Miles Robbins smokes in this scene. Oh my god, the smoking and biting. Uh-huh. He changes his entire body language mm-hmm. once he's Daniel, and it's a really, really impressive performance for Robbins. The mimicry of Patrick Schwarzenegger's body language and movements from earlier in the film, like, they don't look that similar. Like, they kind of look the same, but not that much. And yeah. then when you see Miles Robbins transform into this... It's eerily similar. Yeah. I couldn't stress it more. That's <laughs> what I'm trying to do right now. Try. Can you try to stress it more? <laughs> I cannot stress it enough. <laughs> okay. So at this point, this is basically where Luke gets locked in the dollhouse. And I do love the visual aesthetic of it. Initially, I compared it to a kind of prison, but then it's very clearly like a castle and i think again the uh evocation of knights that we'll see that bookend the beginning and the end feels very on par like daniel thinks that he is a knight or a king and he's got the fortress or the castle to go along with it yeah and he has a a monster that's running around in it sort of like uh the movie castle freak from the 90s There's a lot here. I I think that the way that he sees himself with the kind of elongated skull of being like a crown. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think the castle. Absolutely. The fact that he has it's it's perched over the edge of this abyss, I think, is is so interesting. He's also wearing a costume, right? Like he's essentially a drag king in this sense because he's got the crown. But that's not his. that's his true form. He wears makeup to blend in. He wears a human face, which he can rearrange like putty. Oof. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The house of Daniel is what this damn dollhouse is. My God. <laughs> <laughs> so you two will probably think I'm a huge dum-dum, but I didn't realize until this rewatch that this monster that is running around the castle is John Thigpen. The first time I just thought, oh, he's got something in this castle. Um, Joe, I didn't know that. <laughs> But that makes sense. So what you're saying is, though, is that what Daniel does, once he's disposed of someone, they become like him in his little mansion? Well, you could believe that he's got their soul or their true identity living inside whatever 
this castle is, even if the physical body dies, which is what we saw the coffee house shooter right. at the beginning, which is terrifying because that means like you will slowly morph to become more like Daniel, even after your physical body has died. I also think going back to the reading from the Bible, I think he sees himself as, as a God. And what does mm-hmm. the idea of the Christian God do? He creates man in his own image. So he is literally oh, created uh, thick yes. pen into a, a mimicry of himself. Yeah. Yeah. But like a bastardization of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, against his consent. Right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. This is like a pathetic creature. Oh, that... it's so sad. It, yeah. It's not effective at chasing. <laughs> well, and he's <laughs> rushing after me and he's shouting, yeah. wait, wait, wait. And it, it almost seems horrifying. But then it's like, it's so incredibly sad. He's like, oh, my God, there's someone else here for me. Mm-hmm. Finally. Oh, it's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And now I want to rewatch because I, I never put that together. I thought it was just like some minion. <laughs> Okay, so while Luke is exploring his new prison, uh, we've got Daniel who is wearing his visage, and he goes, of course, to see Cassie. And again, this to me is just the height of pettiness. It's like, dude, you've got your corporeal form. You could Mm. literally go anywhere. No one's keeping track of you. And yet, what do you do? You go to the girlfriend's place. That's the toxic masculinity, though, right? Like, I got to show you that she likes me more than you, bro. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm better at being you than you are. I can go and have my way with your girl. So we're in the climax. We're in the end of this movie. And, like, if we apply, like, a strict queer reader, let's say we want to say, okay, cool. Luke is a repressed homosexual. Daniel is his burgeoning sexuality coming out. And, like, it's able to accept his true form. Mm Mm-hmm. That reading, for me, doesn't really work. Because if you read it like that, then it's queerness is bad. It's the villain. It makes you do bad things. So I think there's a delicate way of reading homoeroticism in this film without flat out saying, like, Daniel represents right that. <laughs> yeah, I've never read this as... I've read this as... Hmm. Well, sorry. So I, I, I jumped the gun because I'm, I'm leading this into... Uh, Luke's pseudo-suicide of sorts that we're about to get to? Yeah. When when we talked with Adam, and I, I did bring up the kind of queer aspect that we're all kind of talking about, and he said that his intent was that he had seen a lot of movies about, like, Stand By Me, about young boys dealing with each other, or he saw buddy right. cop movies, older generation, but he didn't see a whole lot of men dealing with other men at this particular age. And he said at this huh. point, it, and he talks about the toxic masculinity, but it's this idea of you see this really cool guy and you don't know, do I want to be him? Do I want to fuck him? I mean, Daniel is a very sure of himself character and Luke is not. So you mm-hmm. have the sort of situation that you guys talked about back with uh, Better Watch Out, where you have the evil character and the the kind of subordinate that is like following along because he's maybe attracted to him. Maybe he thinks he's cooler than he actually is. Right. So we have this this other situation here. And I think at this moment, at this climax moment between Cassie and him he shows his face where he says I've been kind to you I've shown you sensitivity fuck this whole charade mm-hmm. and that's when he changes his face and he is yeah. embracing that toxicity he is embracing that that character that is either pulling Luke but also kind of pushing him along he is right showing his cards yeah this is where the mask comes off and he reveals who he truly is and oh okay this is what I wear when I'm being myself I'm a piece of shit now yeah That was my eloquent summation of your very, (laughs) you know, crass, very crude. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's funny. My notes basically go down to like two lines at this point because it's like rooftop fight scene. 
I do like the imagery when Cassie is banging Daniel's head against the wall and it's loosening bricks in the prison fortress. Oh, yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the never-ending story and that kind of like... Uh, no, I, I can see that. I can also even see it like something like The Further from Insidious. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, j- just an- another world. I mean, I'm going into the whole, oh, this is his mind. He's escaping his mind. He's pulling himself out of the depths, blah, 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 blah. Right. He has to willfully jump off a ledge into a pink, purple abyss to escape mm-hmm. this. <laughs> He's jumping into I do the, love that the, imagery. the gay cloud. <laughs> gay cloud. Uh, uh, jump into that gay cloud kids before he does jump into the gay cloud we do get that that great line where he says for centuries i've helped people i've solved their problems i've given Mm -hmm. them visions and no one has deserved any of it you are the parasite luke and i think this is the key to understanding why daniel is doing what he's doing he is just tired of everyone's bullshit taking what he has done and perverting it in his eyes. And so it's at this point, it's like, you are the, the actual parasite. But that's his sense of entitlement. I, mean, I know we already touched oh, it on is. it. But, 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 but that line delivery earlier before he changes the face, when he's like, I've been kind to you. I've mm. shown you sensitivity. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this whole charade. Like, oh, okay, because you're nice or because you helped Luke do something, you, you feel entitled things. to yeah. all this shit. Just because. And I'm like, sorry, that's not how the world works. Mm-hmm. This world. Well, sometimes. Well. <laughs> it's not how it should work. There we go. <laughs> There's not really any more, like, fine strokes here. Yeah, we have a sword fight at the top between fake broomstick things. And, you know, while Cassie is schlepping her way down the ladder. I love that scene. She is just calmly walking, climbing down the ladder as the two of them are duking it out. It just, it made me laugh when I was watching it this time I'll, I'll confess this is the part of the film that i don't think is as yeah. successful like every time i watch it i'm always just a little too underwhelmed by this climax and i get the visual symmetry of the call back to when they were childhood friends and yeah, yeah, yeah. this was a sense of play and now it's got these epic life and death stakes to it but i just i don't know visually it's not as interesting to me I don't find the battle of wills as compelling and yeah it's like what the fuck is cassie up to over there I'm going to say something. I think Cassie should have been killed. Hmm. If only because her walking slow as fuck down this ladder is boring. I don't care about what's happening to her. <laughs> you didn't walk fast enough. You should have died. <laughs> we we don't see her again until Daniel hits the ground. And then she's like, oh, I'm just on the last rung. Here we go. No agency from this girl. And this is when we can get into a problematic reading, right? Because what happens here, and this is why I brought up Lights Out earlier, because Lights Out has a similar thing, and spoilers for everybody, but well, basically... It's a bit late now. <laughs> the, the, the character's mother, played by Maria Bello, suffers from depression. The creature in Lights Out is kind of a manifestation of that, but it's her sister. And mm-hmm. the problem is solved by Maria Bello slitting her own, or killing herself. Um, she, I think she slits her own throat. And that gets rid of the depression. Oh, right? dear. Obviously, people were like, um... That's not okay. That's not okay. And so watching this, I was kind of like, I don't think it's the same. But I do think it's treading familiar, similar waters where it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, Daniel makes this choice. He is battling his demons. He's battling... I'm sorry, Luke is battling his demons. If you want to read Daniel as a manifestation of his mental illness, okay, that will complicate this ending a little bit. Because what, what Luke decides to do is throw him and Daniel off of this ledge, killing him hoping that it kills Daniel, yeah. and it doesn't. So Luke's solution to get rid of Daniel slash his mental illness 
is to die by suicide. Yeah, it it's the piece that just doesn't seem as well thought out, or it doesn't work really well with any of the readings that we propose. Like, it doesn't right. play well with the queer one. It doesn't play well with the mental illness one. And it's kind of underwhelming. Like, I get a sense of pathos, and there's a sense of tragedy that Luke couldn't overcome this. But particularly when we're talking about death by suicide, I'm always really uncomfortable and nervous about depictions in popular media that say it's like oh well he murdered himself you know he made this grand yeah. sacrifice for everyone like, to, to save no. cassie to save everyone else around him yeah like let's not do that please and that's why i think the people that don't that have an issue with this i think this for some of them this is a big issue mm-hmm. and that's why i think it's important or at least for me listening to mortimer talk about all the different ways you can read this film i do think the mental illness is 100 percent a metaphor that applies here i don't think the movie is saying here though like oh you have a mental illness you want to get rid of it better kill yourself i don't i don't get that vibe yeah it's not being glib like that yes and, and i i honestly don't feel that way about lights out but i do think that making that connection with lights out is a lot easier than it is here them easier in the sense that like you can say oh yeah they didn't think this through whereas Mm -hmm. i don't i don't feel like they didn't think it through here and daniel isn't real if that makes any sense i don't honestly know what to say about this ending to be perfectly Mm -hmm. honest i think that the intent here is that earlier on there there is the line where luke is talking about how he is just like his mom and danny replies no luke you're not you're something much more interesting Mm -hmm. and so I think the movie at the point when we realize that Daniel is, is not a manifestation of, you know, repressed trauma or is not a mental illness or whatever the case is, he is a physical, spiritual, supernatural being that is to- tormenting him. And that is contrasted with the plight that his mom is going through, where she is actually seeking help and she is getting right, help right. for her mental illness. So we have two different aspects. And maybe the film doesn't necessarily diverge enough from those for the liking because i i think what you're saying is absolutely true and it it kind of makes this ending very complicated to discuss and Mm -hmm. without having to tiptoe around the subject but i i don't think that the intent of the movie which at the end of the day is kind of meaningless authorial intent versus what viewers take from it yeah but i don't think the intent necessarily is to conflate daniel with the struggle of someone dealing with mental illness and i think that's why having the mother is vital. Yes. yes. Yeah, because she is that mental health reading. Like, she is the one suffering from it, but she's also getting help, and she's contrasted. Clearly, maybe it could have been done better mm. or more more yeah. extensively. But yeah. yeah, like, you look at her, and you're like, oh, okay, well, that's not what Luke is going through. Well, that's, yeah, exactly, right? Because if Luke did what his mother is doing right now, he would not be in a better place. But mm. I also cannot fault anyone that, that takes a... Oh, yeah. Oh, God, a pessimistic no, no. reading of this ending or, it, yeah. or, or looking at it as a metaphor for mental illness because it's it's there. It's obviously there. It, yeah. it is it is up to you, the viewer, to choose which way you want to see this. And at the end of the day, your choice is going to matter on your lived experiences as yeah. every consumption of art. like That's how it always works. So, yeah, absolutely. You're 100% right. Now, when it comes to the ending itself, so the one we get, you know, Luke is dead and Daniel back in his gross creature form, is alive to go after someone else. Yeah. Right? He lives another day. There were two other endings that were considered for this. One 
child Luke comes back and approaches a lonely kid in a park and becomes his imaginary friend. Oh, that's kind of sweet. This ties into a circular narrative, and Mortimer has a very large interest in Buddhism, so that tied into that for him. But it was hmm. scrapped because they didn't like the idea of bringing in the child actor to make the last image you see of Luke be not Miles Robbins. Um, hmm, okay. The other ending, and this is one that is on the DVD, you can see this one. Um, adult Luke does come back. He is dead. He goes up to Cassie, and he is saying, oh my god, I'm here. She cannot see him. She walks away. The camera is left panning on Luke as he just kind of smiles. He keeps repeating, I'm here. I'm really here. I'm here. He kind of half chuckles, cut to black. Yeah, see, I don't like that at all. No, that feels a little bit exploitive. <laughs> mm -hmm. I agree. Well, because th that's also saying, oh, so suicide had a positive effect on your life. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it doesn't work. Um, I, I don't mind the child. Like, he becomes another imaginary friend for someone else. I don't mind that at all. I think that actually is kind of sweet. I like it, but I could maybe also see that someone could misinterpret that and be like, oh, he's become a demon now. He's going to haunt that new kid. Yeah, al al almost like it's a virus, right? Yeah. Because mm. part of this does sometimes remind me of that weird Denzel Washington movie, Fallen, oh, where fallen. it's like, it's got oh, the creature yeah. that body hops, and it it's mostly interested in just doing killing sprees. It's, it's a very reductive comparison. But we often have films where demons want to get inside of people so that they can make them do bad things. And I mean, hell, mm. the Conjuring franchise, hello, devil <laughs> made me do it. Yep. And I think that Daniel isn't real kind of shits the bed with this ending, but so much of what comes before it is complicated and interesting and worthy of unpacking with its multiplicity of readings that I'm actually willing to forgive the not great ending. I wouldn't say it shits the bed, but I do think it is one of the weaker aspects of the film in a film that I think is very, very strong. Mm -hmm. But I'm also just kind of like, well, I don't know how you would end this. I don't know an ending that would really, truly satisfy me. I mean, props for not just going with a simple happy ending where he defeats Daniel and gets the girl. That would have been the most obvious way to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that also would have been unsatisfactory. Yeah. I because agree. the sad thing is, is like Luke isn't strong enough to defeat this character. Like he barely got his shit together. Yeah. Yeah. Well... You know what? That's a good segue to kind of our wrap up because listeners, we want to know what y'all think of this because obviously we have spent close to two hours unpacking this film and I don't even think, I mean, we've scratched the surface. I'm sorry. I'll give us that credit. But, <laughs> but, but, but there's more. Like, as we said from the top of this episode, there are many ways to read, to analyze, to interpret this film. And I think that's part of its, that's one of its strengths is that there's so many things to discuss. So let us know what you think. Talk about it amongst yourselves. Talk about it, of course, in the Facebook group without each other, um, politely. But, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I want to know, like, what, what are we not seeing? What did we miss, if anything? Yeah. Well, y'all, any final thoughts on Daniel Isn't Real? It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it holds up really well. If you haven't seen it in a while, uh, go back and revisit it because there are lots of layers to unpack here. And you, if you've only seen it once, like I had before, you probably missed a bunch of stuff. 
Yes. Um, also, uh, really be on the lookout for hidden appearances of Daniel. There's some scenes where you can see his reflection when he's not like actually on screen, but you see him in the reflection. Or right after the, the deep-throating scene, you can actually see creature Daniel walking around the house. Not like not in focus, just like, like in, in like your, the, your peripheral vision. It's really creepy. Hmm. So. <sighs> well, all right. Before we announce what we're covering next week, Terry, first of all, thank you again for joining us for this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a, this was a blast. You know, I love you guys, so. Yeah. Ah, we love you too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let our listeners know, where can they find you on social media? Sure. Um, I'm most active on Twitter at Gaily Dreadful. You can also follow my podcast at Scarred for Life um, on Twitter. And yeah, we're also on Instagram. Um, I'm on Instagram, but I don't. I don't understand Instagram. I'm old. <laughs> Twitter's for me. It's just pictures. You just post pictures. That's all you do. <laughs> yeah, but you got to write, and I like to write, and then the space to write is so small. Yeah. Follow me okay. on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> if listeners would like to give Terry a tutorial on Instagram, please feel free. <laughs> please uh, do. <laughs> but do it on Twitter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Uh, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners and find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And of course, check out our YouTube channel to watch our Micro Queers minisodes because those are really fun to watch. Indeed. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content from the Horror Queers, um, that being Joe and myself, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We're pretty much done with July. We have released everything, uh, so hopefully you've listened to our episodes on the Fear Street Trilogy, Till Death, A Quiet Place Part 2, Werewolves Within, Ambitious Fun. I won't give away our full August schedule yet, but let's just say we will definitely be covering Don't Breathe 2 mild excitement slash nervousness hesitation for that yeah, yeah. a little bit <laughs> and the new shutter uh exclusive the boy behind the door which well i think terry has seen and you can tell us it's great right it's intense as hell good and i think you'll have a very interesting uh conversation about what it is and is not oh okay all right well i'm excited to watch and discuss that <gasps> But Joe, before we do that, we actually have an episode coming out next week. So what are we talking about next week? Well, we're going to stick with young people, but it's not going to be quite as serious, Trace. So folks, we talked about Scary Movie 2 earlier this year, and we opened the floodgates to talk about parody. So we're going to go back and look at one of the original slasher parodies with Student Bodies from 1981. Woo! I've never seen this. Have you seen this, Joe? I have not, but I've listened to the Kill by Kill episode on it, and it sounds really stupid fun. Yeah, that is absolutely what I hear. And I'm excited. I'm borrowing my friend Matt's Blu-ray, and it is a bare-bones Blu-ray that includes another film on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of those. Probably overdue for, like, a deluxe treatment. Yeah, uh, no, I I'm really excited for this. So yeah, uh, everyone join us for Student Bodies next week. It should be a real delight and hopefully less um, offensive than what Scary Movie 2 was. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, we'll see how 1981 jokes have aged. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Well, we will imagine next week. <laughs> <laughs> In just six days. Yes. All right, everyone. Well, on that note, I think we can cross out Daniel Isn't Real. Yes. And cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.